I can remember the moment the pecking order of the world became evident to me. I'd grown up in some fairly insular environments through my young life, up through about sixth grade. I was in either small schools or small private schools. Most of the classes that I had been in had been 10 or 11 people that I had had for multiple years. And when you have classes that small, you basically know everyone. It's like one group. It's a very different experience than what my kids are going through, where it's 30 new kids every year. And so I had grown up in an environment where I really didn't see much of a pecking order around me. But I had had a friend, I'd had basically the whole class was one of friends, but one of the kids in my class, we were going from that private school into the public school in seventh grade together. And I had expected that we would be friends. After all, I had been over to his house a dozen times, played sports together, all sorts of things. So I expected that we would be friends in the new school. I was glad to be going in with one of my friends. But this person was a very gifted athlete, went on to, you know, try to make it in baseball. And I, as you probably can guess, topped out in sixth grade in terms of my athletic ability. And so when I had got into seventh grade and we, I saw that we had the same lunch period, I was excited because I thought, hey, I'm going to go hang out with him. And, and so uh, I saw him there. And what I had known was that he had already been on campus for a while. They had already had sports things leading up to the year. So he had already created a new group. And, and I remember as I was approaching him that he gave me this look that was like, don't sit next to me. And I remember all of a sudden it was clear to me. The whole way things were going to work in middle school. When I see our middle schoolers, our sixth and seventh graders, I see them making that same calculation. Coming out of elementary school, which can be such a warm and nurturing environment for many kids, not for everybody. But into the sort of rat race, trying to figure out their place in the world, where they fit, what makes them distinguished. You know, early on in our life, of course, we're all we're all worried about that. We all want that, and you know, kids will kind of figure out are they good at this, are they good at that. But but it's that that time where it really begins and you start to sort of think, I want this, I want to be this, I want to do that. And, and that's an essential part of that growing up at that time period. And that continues, of course, and all of us know that. And, and then something happens somewhere in the, you know, what we call the midlife, which I'm hoping is the first part of it, but, but something happens when you're in your late 30s or 40s or some point, you, you look around and you go, I've gotten all these things. 
And this is kind of where I am. And maybe you look at your life and you go, That's a, there's a far distance between where I thought I was going to be, what I thought I was going to be doing, the difference I was going to be making in the world, the kind of happiness I might be having or whatever. You see, there's this huge difference. Or, or maybe you look and you say, I achieved a lot of the things I thought were going to be here, but I look around and I go, what, what is this it? And you ask yourself kind of at this point, there's this point of re-evaluation. Some people call it a crisis, but I, it's kind of an opportunity, right? As you look around, and it can be disorienting for many, many people. Because we've all been establishing this pecking order. And then you're kind of not sure where you got to. Now you can choose to just keep on trying to climb. You can choose to focus on something else. There's all sorts of ways to deal with it. But it becomes clear. We're going to talk about that today. I'm going to drill down into that. This kind of ordering of things. And we're going to talk about how I think we can, as Christians, approach this. This question of how do we distinguish ourselves? How do we live a life that, you know, what, what are we seeking? Are we, are we trying to fulfill our expectations? Are we trying to meet the expectations of our parents, of our family, of our spouse, or whatever, friends? Some expectations we don't even know where they come from, perhaps. How do we, how do we move forward? How do we live in, in this, uh, live as, as Christians with all of that in mind? with this kind of pecking order of the world around us. So our guide today is going to be James. And I, and I talked about James a little bit in the beginning, but let me just say that James is a hard book. It's a hard book because it will feel like it paints you in a corner if you read it. If you read the, if you read the book of James, you're going to go, I am not hardcore enough to be a follower of Christ at some point. You're going to say to yourself at some point, there's just no way out of here. And in fact, some people have seen the gospel of James, I mean, the, excuse me, the book of James as somewhat of a graceless book. And Martin Luther famously called it an epistle of straw, a letter of straw. He, he wanted it removed from the Bible. But I think there's a lot of grace there. But it's a grace that understands the price of grace. You have to all think about this. This is James, the brother of Jesus. So for him, the death of Jesus is not this abstract thing. He's talking about his crucified brother. So he understands these things. The price of grace. He doesn't compromise it. So James lays out this scenario. What we know of the early Christian community is that they were very egalitarian. The book of Acts talks about how they held everything in common. That means that whatever property they owned, they pooled it together. You know, I kind of think of like a hippie commune or something like that, but uh, it's actually closer to what the, where my wife and I met, a, a simple living community where you just pool your resources. 
to help each other and those in need. But that meant that, that there was not in that early Christian community a real hierarchy or ranking. But it seems like fairly early on, Christianity started to attract people who were not the poor of the world. The, the first followers of Jesus were very poor. And they were the people who, Jesus says, responded to the gospel. And But, but James lays out this scenario and he says, look, if a rich person comes in and a poor person comes in, and even if you give them the same thing, but if you treat them different, saying you sit here and you sit there, which was very much the social protocol of the day, the pecking order of the day, rich people got a better place to sit, they sat up front. Poor people sat in the back or wherever. But if you do that, it says you're showing favoritism. And that is breaking the law. Remember, he's still in an early part of it. He's still breaking how God wants us to live. And, and so that favoritism that they were showing, he says, this is not an insignificant thing. This is a very important thing. If you say you want to love your neighbor as yourself, that's what he calls the royal law of Scripture, but you show favorites, you're still a lawbreaker. You can't show favoritism. Now, he's not making this up. This goes back from a long tradition in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, it talks about how the Lord God is not, is, is not uh, partial and cannot be bribed. And speaking of the judgment of God, that God is not partial. In Leviticus, it talks about how the rich and the poor must be judged the same. You cannot show partiality to one or the other. There is huge chapters in Isaiah and the Psalms and other places that talk about God's concern for the poor. It's been a long theme through the Old Testament. And Jesus takes all of that and just turns it up to 11. Jesus is sort of, you can think of him as like a pecking order of the world leveler destroyer. Every time he comes into a situation, whether it's the religious pecking order, these people saying we're better than these people because of this, Jesus says no. If it's about the rich and the poor, he says no. If it's about your status in society, he says no. He takes all of the ways that we order things and we establish if we're successful or not and say that's not the point. It's not why you're here. And one famous example, the disciples come to him and they say, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they're asking, basically, when God's rule, when God rules, who of us will be considered the greatest? And he takes a small child and he says, you have to be like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and we see that and we see, you know, you have to be, you know, innocent and that and okay. But the real thing there is that children had no place in society at that time. They were considered non-entities. They didn't survive very long. So to say you had to be a child was to say you had to be the bottom of the pecking order to enter the kingdom of God. He's making a point about it's not who is greatest. God doesn't care about our evaluations of greatness. It's not what God's about. 
So James is saying, building on tradition, God doesn't play favorites. And that should be really evident to us because our whole religion is based on this idea of unmerited grace, that that what we don't deserve, God has poured out on us, even though we are sinners, even though we turn from God, even though we shut off God in our hearts and our lives, even though we routinely do things that we know are not of God, God loves us still. Because God doesn't play favorites. And and so God's unmerited grace, that's a deep cornerstone of us. It's based on the very idea that Jesus, God's own son, died for us. Proof, if anything could ever be, that God doesn't play favorites is that he sent his own son to die for us. So God doesn't play favorites. James is clear about that. And we as Christians and those who call Jesus Lord cannot either. So why is that so hard? Well, it's because we play favorites. We like being a favorite. Who of us doesn't like being somebody's favorite? Little kids, you know, they start to try to figure out who's their best friends. Are you, are we best friends? Are we favorite people? Think of your children who, who probably at some point tried to figure out, are you their favorite? Or are they your favorite? Or is this are their sibling there? Or, or maybe you used to do that. We used to do that with my mom. We'd be like, look, we try to get her to admit that she liked one of us better than the rest of us. And, And I would say things like, okay, mom, imagine that we're all going to die in a boat. And you have to, we're all in the water, excuse me. And you can only pull one of us into the boat. Who are you going to pull into the boat? My mom was an expert at figuring out how to not answer those things. She would say things like, well, I'll just jump in the water too and we'll have a swimming party. Uh, Or she would say things like, well, I'll pull your brother, who will pull you, who will pull you in. And she would try to figure this whole thing out. She would never say, well, I'm going to pull your little brother Matthew because he's my favorite son. That was never the way that she did it. But little kids, you're always worried about who's the favorite, right? That's kind of part of it is. And we call it a pecking order because there's an animal quality to this. This is like things that animals do, right? Who's on top of the, the different uh, animal pack? And then what's the hierarchy? You, you get a new dog and they quickly try to establish, you know, who's the top and who is the top dog in the house or whatever, you know. And that's just kind of part of us. There's eons of evolution pushing us in this way to, to carve up the world, to make these hierarchies. And it's this part of what it is to be this kind of Christian spiritual evolution that Jesus Christ came and just kind of threw down into humanity as this incredible power, this thing that to move us forward, that that he's imagined a world that could push against all of these things, a dream that could see beyond all of this normal way that we do things. But it's hard. I remember when I was in high school and I just started driving. I lived off of 290, the same 290 that comes in Houston, but this was in the Austin side of it. And it was, a, believe it or not, uh, a country road and a country highway when I grew up there. It had five lanes, two lanes on each side and then a middle lane. And if you can believe it, the bus stop, the bus used to stop on 290 to let kids out 
uh, to their houses. They would just stop and then the kids would just wander like a mile to their house. That's just the way country buses worked. So I was a new driver and I was driving on the other side of 290 in a bus stop and I didn't know that I had to stop too. And so I passed the bus and I got pulled over. And why I got, I got really scared because it turns out that if you pass a school bus, that is like next to manslaughter and the worst thing that you can do on the road. Anything to do with school buses is for very good reason really a bad thing, right? So I was very scared. I was looking at, I think, like a $1,000 fine or something like that. And I, I was really scared. And then I got significantly less scared because I found out I could take it to the justice of the peace who was my friend's dad. Small town. And I got off just having to watch some kind of weird defensive driving for Blockbuster video. That's how old <laughs> this story is. But I remembered I liked that feeling, right? That the rules didn't apply to me, that I was kind of a favorite of the system, that, that I got to do things that other people, I knew that justice of peace, I knew that not everyone got to just do defensive driving, that I was special, and I liked being special. We all do. So we want to play favorites. We want to be a favorite. Just take a moment and look at our Christian religion and ask yourself, how many people practice their religion trying to be a favorite of God? Trying to say, we are the favorite. There's that whole idea of frozen chosen, people who kind of believe that they are the chosen people but don't do anything in the world to, to help or anything like that. Think how much of our history Christians have, have kind of said, we are the favorites of God. And yet, here's James saying God doesn't favorites. So we desire to be a favorite. But James is real clear here, friends. If being a favorite means the rules don't apply to us, then there are no favorites for God. What he actually does is he spells out, and it's pretty exacting, he talks about how we have to, to have actions for our faith to be meaningful. This is why some people have a hard time with this book. They say, isn't it faith alone that saves us? And he's saying, well, actually, faith is dead if there isn't action. That there's a component of faith itself. It's a verb. It acts. It moves. It changes. It impacts. You've heard of the golden rule, of, uh, the golden rule but there's a kind of an iron rule that's in the New Testament, which is this, that, that if you want to be shown mercy, as he says, you have to show mercy. Jesus talks about if you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive others. If you forgive others, then you will be forgiven. There's this connection, this iron connection between what God does for us and we do for others. There's no way to sever that. God's mercy and our mercy go hand in hand. And it makes a whole lot of sense because if God is sovereign and God's kingdom will be a kingdom of mercy and love and compassion, which we hold up to be what the purpose of God's kingdom to be, if that's what belongs there, if it is a kingdom of mercy, then what cannot abide in a kingdom of mercy but those who are not merciful? have no place 
And so James is clear. If we are to follow Christ, we must walk the walk. Makes a lot of sense, too, because as we have talked about, James, James is an early Christian, and early Christians talked about the way, that's the, the name they used for following Jesus, and it was this path, it was this way of doing things. And, and I have to think that perhaps in this understanding, this very basic understanding of it, that it might help us to, to frame our lives differently than how so many of us have. We, we talked early on about this pecking order and this way that society's orders affect us and infect us and change us and make us desire to be different than who we are, give us shame, all sorts of things. And I have to wonder, if we were to live as James is suggesting, how much of that would fall apart? If our aim was not to prove ourselves to ourselves and to others, but simply to be people of mercy, of love and compassion, If that was what we daily got up and said to ourselves, not what can I, how can I be more successful today, but waking up and asking ourselves, how can I be more merciful today? How can I be more compassionate today? How can that question guide our steps? And, and it might mean a life would look very different. This is around the the uh, birthday of my grandmother. Here's a picture of my grandmother. She's been dead since uh, 91. She would have been about 100. She died relatively early by today's standards because like many of the women of her day, she smoked a lot. She was a Midwesterner, stern, but very loving, very kind. And so what will happen around this time is a picture will get posted on our family chat. And my aunt or my grandmother, or my aunt or my mother or my sister will remember will talk about her. And I only remember her as a young child. They they traveled a lot, so I remember watching their slideshows of China and Egypt and all these places that they would go to. Kind of really interesting folk. But they were not a wealthy family, lived in Ohio in a small house, and my aunt told me this story this summer that, that really just amazed me. I'd always heard about how generous grandma was, and that was just kind of a part of their family. But this story kind of blew me away. So they lived uh, in uh, a house next to railroad tracks. Well, you know, if you're living right next to railroad tracks, that's not the great part of town. But they also lived close enough, apparently, to a place that the train slowed down for a stop that people would often jump off the tracks near their house. So this was in the 50s, and so people would ride the rails, particularly the poor and those that were doing labor up and down the, the Midwest would ride the rails as a way of transportation. 
And so apparently what would happen frequently enough that my aunt said it happened a lot, and she remembered it happening a lot, is people would come to the house and they would ask for food and money, and she would cook a meal for them, put little kits together of food for them, and send them on their way, give them what money she had, even sometimes apparently invite them in. And my grandfather was an engineer in Firestone and in the military, he wasn't home a lot, so I imagine a lot of this happened when it's just my grandmother and her three kids. Now, I, I know that that does sound like the beginning of a terrible horror movie or something like that, but, but I thought to myself, like, how much compassion? And, and I tried to imagine that happening today. Like if there was a railroad track, and there are some near us, through our neighborhoods, and what if there was just a stream of people who would stop by your house knocking on your door and asking for food? How long would it be before, you know, you got the HOA involved? We've got a security guard for the area. And I'm not saying that to be judgmental. That's how we would do it, too. I'd be like, well, I don't know who's coming. I want people to show up at my house. When was the last time you answered your door where it wasn't Amazon, right? And so I, I thought about this world that she lived in and this kind of generosity. And, and I just, friends, I just, my heart just sat there in thanksgiving that there were and are people who followed this path of mercy. My guess is, is that my grandmother, who would have grown up in the Depression, had had mercy shown to her. That's typically how this happens. People who know you're not that far from riding the rails. That's why James says it's the poor who understand faith. And so sometimes for us to walk this path of mercy, we need to see those places that the world has pressed in on us and find that point of mercy where we know what it feels like to have no mercy. Those moments when, when the pecking order seemed to press down upon us and when others were merciful to us. And, and we say, look, I understand what the cost of mercy is and what the benefit of mercy is, and I want to be a merciful person. And we've talked a lot in these last few weeks about <coughs> how much of a time it is now where there's judgment on all sides <coughs> and everything and how hard it is with all the fear and anger and all of these things to keep things like mercy and forgiveness at the front of who we are, but James reminds us that if we are to be God's people or if we are to walk in his path, then we must be people of mercy. That is what we do. And so you find where you can forgive. You find where you can see yourself in their shoes. You find the ways in which you can be a light of God's mercy in this world. Will you pray with me?